God, as we uh, come before you, Lord, we are uh, mindful of the needs within our church today. God, we think of Mariah Windhorse and um, the sudden passing of her father this, this past week. God, our hearts go out to her and, and the family. We just pray, God, that you would comfort her. Lord, I pray as we believe in, in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within her, that you would comfort her by your spirit. God, that you would strengthen her by your grace or that you'd help her to mourn during this process and or give us wisdom about how to best come around her. And Lord, we pray as we turn to your word, God, we are excited uh, to see what you have for us in Acts chapter six and what this means for our church. And God, I pray though for those who are here today and, and they're just tired, whether physically or spiritually just exhausted today. We pray for those who feel an enormous enormous amount of burden on their shoulders because of life circumstances. God, we pray for those who are weary or even caught in sin today, Lord, that that you would move in in a powerful way through your word and through your spirit. God, that you would help them to lift their eyes upon you, Jesus. Lord, that you would remind them of the hope that is found in the gospel. So Lord, help me to be clear and helpful, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in a sermon series called uh, Multiply, looking at uh, gospel movement in the early church. And we've been walking through specific texts through these first 11 chapters of the book of Acts, really for the purpose of identifying different ingredients of a gospel movement. We really believe that when you put all of these different ingredients together, that the gospel then is multiplied uh, within a church or within a community. And so the first four weeks, we've looked at four different ingredients. We've looked at vision, we've looked at prayer, witness, and community. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fifth ingredient, which is uh, priorities, priorities. Now, the main thought for today's message comes from chapter 6, verse 4, that says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, there are churches whose primary focus is on the importance of the word. I have benefited greatly from different churches, pastors, even authors who have called the church back to a greater focus, a greater dependency uh, on the word of God. And yet there are also other pastors and authors and even churches that have helped me tremendously learn how to pray, taught me the importance of prayer. I remember interning at Parkside Church right after college and being able to intern uh, for Alistair Begg. And and he's a great preacher, but I learned how to pray uh, during that year uh, and just the importance of prayer. It's not just the preparation for the word of God. Prayer is the means by which God's power is actually unleashed. So personally, like I have benefited from both the word stream and the prayer stream, but my desire is to bring both streams together. I think that's enormously important. I also think it's unique and it is greatly needed. I want you to imagine for a moment what would happen to our church, what would happen to your life personally if we were deeply committed to the clear an unapologetic and expositional heralding of God's word while also relentlessly passionate for humble, dependent, and transforming prayer. Imagine what would happen if there was a resurgence in the life of the church and even in your own life of doctrine and dependency 
of proclamation and petition, of the heralding of the gospel in God's word and the humble seeking of God's face. Look, there is something powerful about the and in those statements. And so with that, here's my, here's my big idea that I hope we, uh, we see this morning uh, during our time together, that a commitment to prayer and the word is the essence of ministry and it's the basis for supernatural power in the world. There's a reason why most churches tend to lean towards one or the other because to actually live out the and is really, really difficult. And this issue, and I think really the challenges associated with it are not new. Okay, so let me show you what I mean by that in Acts chapter six. The first thing that I want us to see in this passage here is the dangerous distraction that the early church encountered. Acts six represents a great and defining moment in the life of the church. Like even the first phrase there in verse one, it says, now in these days, okay, almost have to pause and and remind ourselves what has taken place so far in the early church. Well, we've seen that Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God, promising that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to live out the mission that he gave them in chapter one, verse eight. And in chapter two, we learned that the Holy Spirit came and empowered the the followers of Jesus. Peter preaches a knockout sermon, 3000 people get saved and the birth of the church takes place. But there were some challenges. Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin. Sin in the church was exposed. It was dealt with in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And there was this growing sense of uneasiness as a number of disciples were arrested, they were beaten, and they were threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus. Like this time in the early church, it was it was edgy and thrilling and perhaps a scary time to be a leader in the early church. Even notice verse one here, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, you read that, you're like, man, that that sounds pretty cool. That sounds exciting. That sounds awesome. Everything was new. The risks were high. Everything was growing. People were coming to faith in Jesus. New ministries were being launched, but additional needs were becoming apparent the church was expanding rapidly. And as is often the case, growth created some serious challenges. A church of any size, whether our size or here, kind of this mega church in the early church here, it's messy. It's a, a beautiful mess, if you will. And there was a, a serious issue in Acts chapter six. See, what we find out here is that the church in Jerusalem was comprised of native Jews who spoke Aramaic and had grown up in Israel. And yet also there were some Jews who were called Hellenists or Greek speaking Jews and who were often considered second-class citizens. These Hellenists were uh, made up about 10 to 20% of the total population. So they were a minority both in the community, but also in the early church. Now, as part of the church's ministry, there was some kind of daily distribution of food to widows, probably also clothing and money, things of that nature. And somehow these Hellenistic Jewish women were being neglected. 
Verse 1 says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Look, just to say this out loud, just to say this from the pulpit, look, it's, it's hard to be a widow, like in ways that I, I don't even understand. Like we've got some amazing widows here in our church that we love dearly, and we could do a better job keeping them on our radar, loving them, making sure they feel connected and well cared for. It, it's easy though for widows to be overlooked, both in our day and also in the early church. But this was a loaded situation. You have elderly women who are not being cared for, and some believe to be that there was some racial issue underlining all of this. Okay? It might be hard for us maybe to wrap our minds around this situation. So let me, let me paint a picture that, that might help us to feel this more deeply. Okay? Imagine if this situation happened at church. Okay? Imagine if a couple came up to the pastor and said, Pastor, we had a family who moved in from the other side of town, you know, the other side of the tracks. Well, they've been coming here for a couple of weeks and no one from the church has reached out to them and they're deeply offended, okay? Now, uh, we were concerned about our church and you know, maybe it's not as welcoming as a place as we thought, and so we took it upon ourselves to do some research to see if other people felt the same way. And from talking to a ton of people, we have concluded that our church isn't as friendly to their kind as it needs to be, okay? Now, you hear that situation, you're like, wow, like that, that might resonate with us a little bit more. Like you can imagine this type of situation in Acts chapter six, maybe some of the oxygen in the room starting to leave. Like you can see this issue happening in our church even today. So this isn't some issue that happened in the first century, but these are issues that happen in the church quite frequently. There are endless opportunities, endless challenges and struggles and issues and problems. And there just seems to be not enough time in the day to address them all. And when the scope or scale increases, it only gets worse. Pastor Mark Vrogop, the lead pastor at the main campus of College Park Church, has said that a megachurch is just a bigger dog with more fleas. <laughs> that makes me feel better. So in other words, the size of the church doesn't, doesn't necessarily make things any, any easier. And so as exciting as gospel multiplication is, and it is, it also can bring about many distractions that can take us off the mission that Jesus has given us. And so in Acts chapter six, we, we have an early example of the problem of distraction. From its very beginning, the church has had to deal with good things and bad things that could take, that could take the church off course. The church cannot and should not do everything. There are so many opportunities, there are so many needs, so many issues, and yet the church needs to stay on mission with what Jesus has given us. And so today, I just wanna, I want us to see the danger of distractions. I want us to kind of lean into that issue and how it can take us off the mission that Jesus has given us. Okay, let me begin. Let me just offer three observations of, of distractions, things that I've noticed in my own life and in the life of the church. Number one, distractions have always been a problem. They've always been a problem. It doesn't matter 
which period in church history that you choose. It doesn't matter what size church or how many years you've been a Christian. I think that we need to call distractions what they are. They are problematic to the mission that Jesus has given us. And so therefore we need to be on guard uh, against them. Number two, I think that distractions make us feel busy and important. There's something that's really meaningful about responding to the crises, the crisis needs of people. There's something really meaningful about uh, solving a problem or navigating a difficult situation. I think if we were honest, like we, we like to feel needed at some times. Like we can almost develop a, a savior complex where we become almost addicted at fixing people or problems. And yet this tendency can lure us away from the mission because we can at times confuse distractions from what we've actually been called to do. We're not called to fix every problem or person. I mean, Jesus didn't even do that in his earthly ministry. He went from town to town and he didn't always heal every single person. Number three, I think that distractions are everywhere. Distractions are everywhere. I know we feel this and this has always been the case within the church. And yet I think the day and age in which we live in, never before have we had such a wide variety of them. I mean, the pace that we live in now is, it's almost unprecedented in human history. Like the amount of multitasking and loaded schedules and the battle of being present with who you're with and what you're doing because of iPhones and, and other devices, it makes distractions like spiritual warfare at times. Like juggling all of these uh, commitments and our calendars being so full, we can lose sight in participating in the mission of Jesus. Look, don't you feel the pressure of this? Like it, it doesn't matter if you're single or married, kids, no kids, working, retire. Like I think we all feel the, the power of distractions. And I really believe we, we live in a day where it's, it's not only normal to be overly busy and distracted, it's almost celebrated. And so there, there are a lot of um, potential good that can come from distractions. No doubt, like God can sometimes work in and through that, kind of dropping a situation in front of us. But I would say that distractions are more often than not things that take us off what our real priorities should be. And I know that this resonates with us this morning. Distractions are not just common in the church. They're common in our own souls. They're common in our marriages. They're common in our families, in our friendships. And it needs to be taken seriously because they can be dangerous. Now, gratefully, we have in Acts chapter 6 an example when the pastoral leadership did the courageous thing and clearly defined the priorities. I believe that this text and this moment, these words serve as an important model, not just for church and ministry, but even for our own personal lives, our own souls, our own marriages, and our own relationships. Something I wanna point out to you is something that the leaders do is they, they point the church to a stronger yes here. This is one of the things I learned early on in ministry from wiser and more seasoned pastors was that the power of no is in a stronger yes. That, that truth, I think, coming from this text has helped me in countless difficult situations, specifically in church leadership, but also personally in my own life. 
And so what is the yes of this text? How, how do the leaders lead through this situation? Well, looking at verse two, they don't ignore the problem at hand. Look, look with me at verse two. It says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now the word right means it would not be proper or desirable. Okay, so, so they saw the need, the very important need of widows in light of the greater need. In other words, they looked at all the needs, they looked at all the opportunities in front of them, and there was clearly a hierarchy. Okay, it's not that serving tables or meeting the needs of widows was unimportant, but they had to prioritize. Okay, I, I didn't go to med school, but this is something similar that takes place when you go into the emergency room. There's something called triage that takes place where someone, maybe a nurse is evaluating what's happening with your body, whether a sickness or injury. And I believe that there's three general categories. There's urgent, which is like life-threatening. There's urgent, but not immediately life-threatening. And then there's less urgent. Okay, this process of triage is helpful when the ER is bombarded with all kinds of sick and injured individuals. Well, what the leaders demonstrate for us in Acts chapter six, you can call ministry triage that they knew that if their primary calling was eclipsed by another calling, that the result would not be good for them or the health of the church. And so they had the spiritual foresight to see the danger of the distraction and then to clarify what their stronger yes actually was. Look with me at verse four. It says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, this was their stronger, yes, this was the, the apostles and the leaders kind of triaging with, with the ministry opportunities before them. That prayer and the word is the essence of what pastoral ministry is all about. This is the central non-negotiable aspect of what the church is to be committed to. Furthermore, this is really the essence of what, what the Christian life is all about. The prayer and word is the means by which we follow Jesus. And so let me maybe help us for a moment that if you're not a pastor in the room, you might view this and say, I, I don't need to prioritize the word and prayer in my life. Like this is, this is for the pastors, the, the apostles of our day. Like I'm just gonna spend my time maybe serving the, ta the tables and serving the needs elsewhere. And yet I just wanna push back on that for a moment because if you're a follower of Jesus, Prayer and the word must be a high priority for us all. Even in the text here, if you look at verse five, the seven men that they choose here, two of them, Stephen and Philip, went on to use the ministry of the word. This wasn't like everyone's off the hook except for the apostles. No, no, no. Stephen went on and even the next chapter, he preaches, he evangelizes, he uses the word. He becomes the church's first martyr here. And so even though he was involved in meeting the needs here, he had a commitment to the word and prayer that we all should have. And then Philip went on to be a church planner, planted a church in Samaria, used the word to evangelize and to do that. And so yes, pastors in particular, their highest priority should be the word and prayer. But for every follower of Jesus, a high priority for the word and prayer must also be true. 
Uh, These are the transformative basics of gospel ministry. And I believe that this is prescriptive. This is for all churches, no matter the size, location, or time in history. At the end of the day, gospel ministry is about the word and prayer. Now, what is the word of God? Well, the word of God is the the communication of God's heart, his law, and his redeeming gospel to a lost and sinful world. It is the means by which we know right from wrong, truth from error, hope from despair. And according to Hebrews chapter four, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look, could there be anything more important? Now, what is prayer? Well, prayer is a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God that turns theology into experience. So it's the means by which we express to God our love, our awe. It's the means by which we humble ourselves, we acknowledge our dependency and our need, that we seek God's daily help. And according to Jude 20 and 21, prayer is the means by which we build ourselves up in the faith, that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Look, could there be anything more important? Look, I just wanna press us a little bit and and just exhort us that it is vital to have both in our life personally and even in the life of our church, to have a personal spiritual life or ministry with just the word or just prayer makes us off balance. We start to drift into certain guardrails. Okay, let me give you an example. Like to be word focused, but prayer neglecting will lead you into areas of dead orthodoxy. Okay, there, there will be great love for theology, an understanding of the different nuance of biblical words, well-marked Bibles, great note takers in church, very informed conversations about the grammatical historical context of the Greek and the Hebrew. But the great mistake is making that just because you know a truth means that you've experienced a truth that's like a mighty sailboat with no wind. It's great for tours at the dock, but that is all. And yet on the other hand, one could be prayer focused and yet word neglecting, which would result in a type of emotional shallowness, that there will be a great concern for the needs of others, maybe a, a palatable sense of desperation, a passion to be all in for Jesus, a very real sense of the presence of Jesus, but without the word, it is a mistake to think that just because I feel something means that it is true. It's like a mighty sailboat with lots of wind, but no rudder. It can sail the seas, but it it can't avoid the shipwreck on the reef. Now, College Park, I, I know that we know this, but it's so easy to lose perspective, isn't it? Like it's so easy to, to get so busy, so distracted, and even good things like meeting the needs of people in our, in our church family, in our own families, in our own personal life. And yet we tend to overcomplicate things. Like this is a, a key ingredient of a gospel movement to ensure that we have the right priorities, both for our very lives and our church, to be committed to this idea of and, word and prayer, to to get back to the basics, if you will, of a Jesus mission life. And so this morning, I, I don't wanna sound over, I'm not trying to oversimplify the issue. I don't wanna sound too basic here, but I wanna call us afresh to these two priorities, 
that we need the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we need prayer, which is the air that Christian soldiers breathe. So just think with me for a moment what this combination would do in your own life personally and even in the life of our church. And so in light of that, let me just ask you the following questions. Number one, just to kind of get at this, but have you drifted in your practical passion personally? I suspect that many of us probably remember a time in our relationship with the Lord where it was at like an all-time high like we were passionate for Jesus. We had <clears throat> great intimacy with the Lord. Like we had this passion for both the word and prayer. And yet over time, maybe that passion has leaked a little bit. Maybe it's drifted. Maybe it's faded. Like I don't wanna guilt you this morning, but I do wanna call you back to the basics of word and prayer. That being committed to the word and prayer is the means by which that passion is restored. And it also to remind us that passion or desire for the things of God is not the end goal of why we, should, of why we pursue the Lord uh, after all. Like pursuing the Lord in the word and prayer, we do that out of faithfulness to what he has called us to be and to do, whether we have that passion or not. Number two, the second question is, does your schedule reflect a chapter six, verse four priority? Like passion is the starting point, but it also needs to translate into sacrifices and specific decisions. That if prayer and the word are that important, then shouldn't this, combina this combination show up in specific and tangible ways? Like this, this should require a deep commitment to both the word and prayer in our daily lives. Look, I, I know we know how to prioritize things. Like we, we shower every day, like we probably watch TV every day, like we, we answer email, we make meals, like we prioritize the things that we deem important. And so shouldn't we make time for both the word and prayer in our lives? And thirdly, do you know how to pray and to absorb the word? My sense is, is that if you feel like your life is like a ship without wind, or like a, a ship without a rudder, it might be because you feel ill-equipped in these two arenas. So can I just encourage you if, you, if you feel that way, like I would love to be committed to praying and reading scripture, I just don't know how. Can I, can I encourage you to, to join a small group and ask your small group leader that? Just say, hey, can, I, can, can, you, learn, can you teach me how to pray? Teach me how to study uh, the word? Can I, can I encourage you to, to come to our monthly prayer and worship nights, to learn how to pray with other believers? That's a great way to learn how to pray is praying out loud with, with other followers of Jesus. Can I encourage you to find a, a more seasoned saint in our church and just walk up to them and say, hey, can I, can I buy you coffee this week? And can you teach me what it means to pray, what it means to study the scriptures? Look, if you're looking for that type of relationship or that type of, of being equipped, just email me or, or Dustin or anybody on staff. We'd love to connect you so that you feel better equipped and empowered for the word and prayer. But I really believe a commitment to the word and prayer is the essence of the gospel being multiplied in our lives. And so we need to renew our commitment to this stronger yes of the word and prayer, both in our personal lives and in the life of our church. Now, the final thought that I wanna share with you this morning is the connection between this commitment to word and 
prayer and the resulting supernatural power. I believe that these two issues are absolutely linked, that there is, there is something powerful when, when you are committed to the combination of word and, and, and prayer actually lived out. Now, verse five tells us that this courageous commitment on the part of the disciples pleased the whole gathering. So they, they chose seven men who they commissioned to oversee this important ministry. And again, notice that the commitment to the word and prayer is not this ivory tower, neglect all the other areas of ministry type of perspective. But the disciples, they maintain their priorities while appointing and empowering others to do uh, the work. Now, I've already pointed out maybe the, the racial tension in this passage. Like, the minority group in this church, they felt like their needs were being neglected. But notice in verse five, these, the seven men that were chosen, they all had Greek names here. Most likely these were, these were all minorities in the church. And so it kind of begs the question, like if we're going through the book of Acts here to better understand what is the vision for our church? What, what are some key ingredients for what our church needs to be about? We, we must ask the question, what, what does this mean for us as a church and the church that God is calling us to be? And I just wanna kind of maybe pull over for just a moment and just kind of have a, a family talk as it relates to um, ethnic diversity. I, I believe that even though we we don't live in a very diverse community. I, I believe that we need to grow in this area of ethnic diversity. And I think we do a great job. You guys do a phenomenal job of creating a culture on Sunday morning where people feel welcomed, they feel loved, they feel valued. I wanna commend you to continue on in that work, no matter who walks in those doors, whether they're white, black, or, or whatever, just to continue on in that. And then I also think that we need to continue to think about building relationships throughout the week with people who don't look like us. I think that's a, a great next step in, in creating more of an ethnically diverse church here in the Fishers community. And I also wanna say, I, you know, the most segregated hour of the week is, is Sunday morning. And, and I don't wanna contribute to that. Like that, that does not sit well with me as a pastor and I want you to know, like, I'm not, I'm not guilting any of us with this whole topic here. I just, I just want us to consider how, how can we apply the gospel to ethnic diversity? Like, what, what would that look like for us? And I want to just admit before you, like, we, we need your help in that. Like, we, we need you to kind of help lead us in figuring this out together. And, and so I just want to just offer this up to you. If you're really passionate about this topic and you would love to maybe lead in, in this initiative and offer ideas, would you just email me personally? We're thinking about kind of creating a team to kind of lean into this issue in, in the life of our church because we believe it's a gospel issue. We believe that when the community looks at churches and it's still segregated, what does that say about the power of the gospel and the implications of the gospel? And so we wanna, we wanna lean into that more. And so feel free to email me um, to learn more what that might look like, okay? So with that, let me, let me close and just point out the results of word and prayer. Look with me at verse seven here. It says, and the word of God, now just check out this verse. This verse is unbelievable. What happens when a church is committed to word 
and prayer. It's unbelievable. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Like you read that and you're like, man, like I want that. Like that's, that's the vision for our church. Like that's gospel multiplication of the gospel being multiplied deep within someone's life and wide throughout the world. And there must be a reason why Luke included this in the account of the early church. This was a supernatural influence. There was a supernatural multiplication and impact that the early church had because of their commitment and their priorities to the word and prayer. Notice this, look, first, they had, they had this influence within Jerusalem. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. This means that the word of God, the gospel was growing and it was continually spreading. Look, don't you long for that? Don't you long for, for conviction just to fall on the church? Like for, for widespread repentance to take place on a weekly basis, for people to deal honestly with their sin? For, for God to, to break strongholds and for marriages to be restored and for people who are caught in addictions to find freedom? Do you long for just the word of God to be unleashed on a weekly basis? Like I, I long for that. And I, and I believe that it happens when, when a church is committed to both word and prayer, both as they gather and even throughout the week as they live out their relationship with the Lord. It's unbelievable what the word of God did in the early church. But secondly, let me point out this idea of, of multiplication here. It says, in the number of disciples, they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And so the church here was, was able to experience growth, real growth, and the effect on the movement of Christianity was absolutely profound. And I know, I know our culture probably puts too much emphasis on numbers here, but I'll just point out that people are attracted to real life change, that people wanna be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. They wanna be a part of something that's, that's actually real and to invite their friends uh, to, to participate in that. And this idea of multiplication, really like the vision of our church, that this isn't lived out in our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria and the ends of the earth through a better marketing strategy of the church. A gospel multiplication isn't found in that church having a slick 10-year plan or some, or some well-organized strategy within the church. A gospel multiplication happens when the gospel is multiplied deep within your soul. Like when you, as a follower of Jesus, like you just cannot get over the fact that God loves you and God sent his son to die for you on the cross. Like when you understand the, the weight of that reality, not just up here theologically, but when it hits you in the deepest parts of your being, that God has an endless reckless pursuit of you in his love, like that, that just overflows in and out of you and in the conversations with people in your life. And look, our, look, our church, we, we can be sometimes maybe too heady, too, too theological, if I can say that, where just because we know something means that it's, it's dipped down into our affections. Look, I just, I just wanna challenge us this morning with the thought, just to say this slowly, God loves you. 
Like, just sit on that for a moment. Like, we're talking about God here. Like, we're talking about the endless creator of everything that we see and don't see. He, he knows how many hairs are on your head. Like, he knows you by name. He knows all of the burdens of your life. And he has sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. Like, like allow that to just move past like the familiarity of that, the doctrine of that, and just allow that to pierce your soul, maybe in ways that it hasn't before. God loves you. What a, what a life-changing reality. What, what an unbelievable thing that God who considers us enemies, we were objects of his wrath, set his affection upon us, drew us into a relationship with him. And I believe that reality changed the early church. That, that whole concept, that God's saving power actually changed them and led them to sharing the reality that God loves them. And so how, how's the gospel multiplied? Like how, how do we live this out? How, how can we reach Hamilton County? The first step is, is being committed through word and prayer to not allow the things that we know to be true to just stay as head knowledge, but allow those truths to be funneled into our hearts and our souls so that it actually impacts how we live. And, and that's gonna demand a sacrifice of your time. That's gonna demand you sitting in front of the word of God and pleading with the Lord, God, press this deep into my soul. God, don't let me go throughout my day with just a head knowledge of your love, but press that into my heart so that I actually share that with other people. It's gonna mean creating space between you and the Lord where you have an unhurried amount of time to just soak and to dwell on God's endless love. Like if you go throughout your day as as just a, a person who's more familiar with his love, you'll never allow the gospel to be multiplied in and through your life. I wanna be that kind of church. I wanna be that church where we, we gather together and we just bask in the glory and the love of God. And that happens when we're committed to the word and prayer. Lastly, the third thing I'll point out here in verse seven is just the amount of, of impact that the early church had We've seen the gospel and the word of God, their influence, the multiplication, but look at this phrase here. It says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now don't, don't miss the significance of that statement. Remember, it was the organized religious establishment who murdered Jesus, okay? In fact, it was the Jewish Sanhedrin who just arrested the disciples. And so the priests here who are coming to faith, they're not neutral in all this. Like they were directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus. And yet what we, what we see here is they're actually coming to faith in Jesus. Like some historians believe and estimate that there were over 8,000 priests in Jerusalem at this time. Now, not all of them came to faith in Jesus, but it says a, a great many of them did. And see, you see the gospel and its impact here. This represents almost a miraculous turning of events, like a clear sense that God was at work in their midst. This is the kind of situation that only God could orchestrate and create. Like imagine, 
Like what would that look like in our context today? Imagine if thousands of Muslims declare that I am a follower of Jesus. Imagine if unreached people groups suddenly began hearing about Jesus and turning to him. Imagine if racism was denounced, repented of, and true Christianity was embraced. Imagine people began repenting of secret sins and turning their lives over to Jesus. Imagine if men all over our nation and throughout the world were cut to the hearts and convicted of their abuse towards women and cried out for forgiveness. Imagine if reconciliation of marriages began taking place all over Hamilton County. Just, just think of any area where the enemy has a stronghold and just, it was suddenly just broken down. God, I long for that. I long for the word of God to be unleashed. And I know you do as well. And not just on this large scale, but even on a, on a personal level. Look, our, our world needs help. Like Hamilton County needs the gospel, needs the hope of Jesus. Like our, our church needs help. Our, our families need help. Our marriages need help. Like, like I need help. Like I want the supernatural power of God to be something that I experience on a daily basis. And, and this is for the glory of God. I, I long for supernatural influence and multiplication and impact, but what is at the core ingredients that God uses for that to take place? It's, it's chapter six, verse four. It's an authoritative word and it's a passionate prayer. So this morning, as we close, I just wanna ask you a couple of questions just to kind of meditate on the word and prayer here. Are, are you here this morning just dry spiritually? Do you feel distracted maybe in your, in your life and in your pursuit of Jesus? Is your ministry or small group anemic? Do you long to see transformation? And I just wanna encourage you, if that's you this morning, I just encourage you, go back to the basics. Go back to being committed to the word and prayer and allowing your soul to be fed the power of Jesus in those two avenues. Look, a commitment to prioritizing prayer and the word is the essence of ministry. It's the basis for supernatural power in the world and they must be the priorities of our church and our lives. So this morning as we close, we're gonna sing one last song and just want to encourage you to use this time and, and maybe just to, just to cry out to the Lord and, and ask him to help you make these priorities in your life. Maybe use this time as maybe more of a confession, just confessing to the Lord that, that you've been distracted in the pursuit of these two things and you want to just come to him with a, a fresh commitment of living a life with these two priorities. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for the power of your word. God, we thank you for the amazing privilege of prayer. God, that we get to talk to the living God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never get over that. Lord, that we have access to you through praying and we get to hear from you through your word. God, I pray that that would shape us. God, I pray that you would give us a, a holy burden for the pursuit of the word and prayer. And God, we long to see just the work of the Holy Spirit to be experienced in our lives personally and in and through our church. God, we wanna see many people come to faith in Jesus 
to confess that he is Lord, to bend their knee to him, to experience the, the soul satisfaction that is Jesus. So God, would you continue to lead us in that way, I pray in Jesus' name.